This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 4th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. 9-11 was 20 years ago, but this month we mark another sad milestone. 20 years since the passage of the Patriot Act, a breathtaking expansion of federal power and law enforcement. Chris Coyne is co-author of Manufacturing Militarism and Tyranny Comes Home. We spoke about what 20 years of the Patriot Act has given us. 9-11 was obviously a, a very tragic day. It rejiggered a lot of how Americans, both the political classes and just average Americans, think about terrorism. And uh, I, it lost, I think, will ultimately be the fact that we're not marking the anniversary of the Patriot Act as much as we probably ought to. Um, you write with uh, Abigail Hall in Responsible Statecraft, 9-11 militarized law enforcement and made every American a suspect. So let's get into some of the details of how that actually occurred. The Patriot Act itself was a sort of a wish list of police and surveillance authorities. What were what are some of the most salient parts today of what was in that law? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me back, Caleb. It's always good to speak with you. Uh, and you're certainly correct that in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, we get what today is called the, the very broad and open-ended war on terror. And a key part of that was Congress passing the USA Patriot Act. And the purpose of the act, which was not debated, it went right to to, to vote on the floor and you know, one of the pushbacks by a very small minority of representatives at the time was that there was no time for them to read, discuss, debate the content of the bill. But the very purpose of it was to expand the surveillance capabilities of the U.S. government. And there's, uh, you know, it's it's a very dense bill. But just to highlight a couple of the kind of key aspects is is one, it expanded the government's ability to uh, search private property. Uh, more specifically to search private property without notice to the owner. And so one of the fundamental kind of aspects of, um, you know, private property, privacy, and checks on government power is that typically to search private property, you need some judicial oversight. So this is why we have things like warrants that are approved by a, a judge or a panel of judges. Uh, and the the owner needs to be notified that, some kind of law enforcement or government agency is searching their property or has searched their property. So what Section 213 of the Patriot Act allowed was what's called sneak and peek. So it allowed the government to search people's private property, whether physical or, or online, without them knowing. Um, the other aspect uh, that uh, uh, emerged was something called tap and trace uh, searches, which uh, allowed uh, members of the national security state and law enforcement to uh, collect information about the communications of citizens and non-citizens. Uh, and so it allowed them to to collect information about the uh, origin, destination of communications, and so on. That was Section 214. There are you know, numerous things and powers that uh, law enforcement wanted before the Patriot Act that were sort of rolled into this bill that, as you note, uh, most representatives, if, if any, None of them had time to read it. In your work uh, with Abby Hall, in terms of how that alters the the relationship between Americans and policing broadly, what do we know? Sure. Well, well, the fundamental issue is as follows: 
the the purpose of a police force of a of a national security state in the broadest sense is to protect the property and person of uh, Americans, American people. And of course, in, in principle, it can do that. The risk is one of anytime you concentrate significant amounts of power and specifically discretionary power in the hands of a centralized entity with few checks on, on that power, it can be abused. Uh, it can be used for uh, to engage in narrow opportunism, which actually undermines the very purpose of, of having those agencies. And so we know that the information and data on large numbers of the American populace uh, have been collected, swept up, uh, have been looked at by law enforcement agencies, but have been looked at by members of the national security state. And these, this is information related to people who are just ordinary people living their lives. They're not suspects in any way. And one of the very kind of worrisome aspects of the war on terror is that it transformed everyone because the the entire earth is a is a battlefield where where there's potential terrorists around every corner it transformed everyone into a potential suspect and so we can't be sure if you or i or anyone else is going to be a potential terrorist threat and so the argument goes those that are tasked with protecting security need to have access to all our information uh, and, uh, you know, this has happened before prior to the war on terror. So it's kind of the, the latest iteration um, of this dynamic, but it's it's perhaps one of the most worrisome and, and one of the most overlooked often because it's unseen. You know, it's not like surveillance hits you in the face the way other war making technologies um, kind of are readily observable. And so that's why we, Abby and I, highlight this as something that we hope that uh, people will pay attention to. What do we know about the effectiveness of those tools. Uh, I know that you you and Abby reference uh, John Mueller uh, in your work, and he's done a lot r- with respect to terror attacks. But do we know anything about uh, clearly about what these uh, various authorities allowed under the Patriot Act gave us in terms of security? Sure. So it's, it's always hard to know, of course, specifics um, to the full extent, just because there's so much secrecy surrounding this. But John Mueller, as you mentioned, has done wonderful work in documenting um, both the the low risk of of a terrorist threat to ordinary Americans, and this is important as you're weighing, you know, what steps should we take in response to that potential threat? Presumably, you want to know what the magnitude of that threat is. But the other thing he's pointed out is that many of these efforts that fall under the very broad umbrella of the the war on terror, which of course includes these surveillance activities we're discussing, has actually generated very little concrete information that has prevented terrorist attacks. Uh, and uh, so then you have to ask yourself, well, well, what are we purchasing by turning over our cherished liberties and freedoms in the name of protection? And, you know, that's the that's the rub of it all, is that it's unclear that anything's been prevented that couldn't have been prevented through ordinary police work. And, of course, the response is often, well, there's potential risks. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, then we run the, the, into the challenge of, well, well do we want to turn over our cherished liberties in the name of preve- potentially preventing threats that may exist but may not exist? And that's something that citizens themselves need to reflect on 
My own position is that we should be very cautious about turning over those liberties because once they're gone, uh, it's extremely difficult to get them back. You know, the surveillance state, it's not a, although the current manifestation is a post 9 11 phenomena, the surveillance state is, itself is not. Uh, it's existed in various forms since the early 1900s in, in America, uh, kind of came to, to maturity in the wake of the world wars. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the most recent iteration in the post 9 11 period. Uh, has kind of put that apparatus on steroids, and so it's it's highly effective in terms of monitoring people. Probably the most powerful surveillance apparatus in the history of the world. Uh, Chinese government, of course, is quite powerful as well, but but it's a it's a neck and neck race, I would say. Uh, and so that's the the concern here. Uh, it's very low payoff, even in terms of the stated objectives of those who are proponents of the surveillance state, uh, but a real and genuine. Uh, a threat uh, to civil liberties. What do you say to folks who have that attitude, that pervasive attitude, I might add, that I don't have anything to hide. They can look at my emails. They can look at my text messages. Well, the response, I think, is is goes back to Frank Church. And Frank Church was a, a, a representative who um, oversaw something called the Church Committee in the 1970s. And that Church Committee investigated abuses of the surveillance power of the FBI, the CIA, uh, the NSA. Uh, and uh, uh, what they found is that even in the 70s, that the surveillance state was prevalent in all corners uh, of the, the world and certainly in, in, in American life. And what Frank Church warned against is the following. He said, okay, you may have nothing to hide today, but the risk is that if someone came to power in the future who was a genuine threat to your liberty and freedom, you, and this is the 1970s, you would have no place to hide. They could access all of your key information, they could monitor and surveil you, and they could use that information to control you. Now, you think about the, the technologies that existed in the 1970s, and you think about the technological advances that have uh, come to be since then, and you realize that his warning is more relevant than ever, that the risk isn't so much right now, even though you might be worried about that as well. But what happens if someone comes to power, or some group comes to power that does pose a real risk? And so one thought experiment is to envision your least favorable politician. That can be a, an actual individual. It can be some hypothetical individual that has characteristics of what you would consider to be the, the least desirable politician. Now, imagine them, imagine putting them in control of this apparatus and then thinking to yourself, well, would I be happy if that person was wielding these awesome powers, not just over my life, but the lives of my loved ones, those I'm closest to, but also my, my fellow uh, uh, citizens and, and my fellow human beings around the world? And that's one way to kind of check your thinking and to, to think about the, the real risks here. Most of that apparatus is still with us. That's correct. And so parts of the Patriot Act uh, were sunset, so they went away. Um, but the apparatus itself is uh, still there. The, the core surveillance apparatus and the powers that have been granted to it are still there. And one of the big, here's one of the big challenges with the surveillance state. And this, this has been a, always been a big issue with national security in general. On the one hand, it, the very structure of the apparatus is to ensure secrecy. And you, you can see why. 
you say, well, we don't want our enemies to know what we're doing. We don't want this very top secret classified information that's related to national security to fall in the hands of our enemies. So that's the, the, the usual kind of justification. But on the other hand, that prevents oversight. It prevents oversight by representatives in Congress. It prevents oversight by the citizenry because they don't have access to what those in the security state are doing. And so abuses that take place uh, are, are often go unchecked. Now, for instance, in the, in the 70s, 1978, in the wake of the church committee, which I mentioned earlier, the FISA court was created. And the FISA court was, uh, FISA stands for Foreign Intelligence Surveillance uh, Act. Uh, and, and that act was passed in 1978 in response to the church committee. And it created a court and it was a se- it's a secret court. Uh, I mean, people know about it, but its operations are largely secret. And it's supposed to check um, the operations of the surveillance state. Uh, but uh, under the, the Patriot Act and through other executive orders, the Bush administration removed most of those checks. And, uh, you know, many argue that the FISA court has become largely a rubber stamp, uh, that it's not really checking the activities of the surveillance state. And so, uh, you know, the surveillance state has not gone anywhere. It's still prevalent uh, and it's a real risk. And again, an unseen one and, and one that we need to uh, critically discuss because otherwise it's not going to get discussed because it just operates in the background. And, and that's what makes it so efficient, but also so dangerous. Chris Coyne is co-author of the new book, Manufacturing Militarism. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.